Hello everyone and welcome to the Constructed Criticism Network. This network is here to help you improve in Magic the Gathering at every level. From popper leagues to top 1000 mythic, we've got you covered. If you want to hear the entire network, head on over to our sponsor at puremtgo.com where you can hear each and every show, each and every week, and check out their sponsor, MDGO Traders, and tell them that the CCMTG Network sent you. Now sit back, enjoy the show, from YouTube, podcasts, and more, here's this week's episode from ConstructedCriticism.com. How's it going, everybody? It is currently 12.02, Friday afternoon, March the 6th, I think. Let me double check that. Yeah, March the 6th, 2020. And it's time for this week's trip down the homeward path. This is my show. My name is Adam. I'm a husband and a father of three. One of whom is sitting right back here behind me in the car. Uh, we are headed off for a haircut this afternoon, but it gave me an opportunity to waste 30 minutes in the car, so I'm not going to waste it. So Abel's in the back seat with me. Can you say hi? Hi. Speak up. Hi. Hi. Yeah. He may chime in off and on, but, you know, this is how it goes. So, what are we talking about this week? Well, if I'm being honest, I've been seeing some red this week. So I want to talk about everything there is to to do, the unsung versatility, if you will, that belies the color red in Magic the Gathering. Because red is one of the unsung heroes of Magic from from a gameplay perspective. It's something that just always feels like it's good, and a lot of players take that for granted, but when it's not, when it's not present, when it's not available in a format as a major driving force, the formats can suffer. But even more than that, I want to talk about kind of clearing up some of the common misconceptions around what makes a red deck a red deck. Because, I mean, we got a lot of things to cover in that regard. But first, I'm going to slide over into the fast lane, and I'm going to hit a little bit about the upcoming uh, BNR announcement. It was slated for Monday, the, the 9th of March. And some of you are listening to this on the 9th of March or after the 9th of March, and I'm here to tell you one thing and one thing only that, you know, we can can claim that is put on the record. I don't know what they're going to do. I I really don't. I can guess, but the best I can do is offer up some conjecture. Personally, if I had to if I had to make out a wish list of cards that I'd like to see change numbers or whatever, I would lean toward no changes in standard. Because I think standard's fine. It's been a fun format. It's becoming a grindy format, but it inevitably does this time of year. A uh, second set release is usually when the format starts to slow down some. And then it may speed up once they give aggro some extra tools in the next set after. Or the you know we get kind of a bigger mid-range deck that comes along and helps to push the pace a little bit. But this is the time of year where the format always seems to kind of dial back a little bit compared to where it has been. Even last year, you know we had the it was what was it the the mono white splashing red plus the uh, the. Oh, Lord, I can't think. The the stompy variants of Golgari, you know, all of that. And once we got Allegiance, like, 
Sultai mid-range became ruler of the roost and eventually Mono Blue Tempo with its elegant ability to balance stage one and stage two gameplay came out and started dominating and then you know it wasn't until War of the Spark that things really changed. We had a, a sweet dynamic mid-range format there for a while. And that, you know, that's healthy, that's good. So I don't have any problems with standard right now. Yes, there are some decks I'm tired of playing against, but that doesn't mean they need to be banned. I just need to beat them. <laughs> you know, I play I play a fair amount on the ladder, and I, I alternate between seeing the blue-green X-Ramp decks and aggro. And I, I've, I've got something that can be tuned in, in such a way to be able to handle both of those, but be soft to, like, the the actual blue-white control decks. But as much blue-green X and red as I'm running into, it's probably going to be worth it. So I need to get, get my brewer's cap back on, get to fixing. May end up being a deck tech for all of you later. So I don't see any... I don't, I don't see any changes coming in standard. I don't want any changes coming to standard. And then the next one, Pioneer... I haven't played Pioneer on the hyper-competitive level enough to know really what needs to be banned, so I can only go off of, you know, what I've, what I've been told, what I've been hearing. And the vast majority of that is Inverter of Truth needs to go, um, what is it, Inverter of Truth, Underworld Breach, Thassa's Oracle, Dig Through Time, right? Personally... All of that together, I'd say, could be accomplished pretty cleanly and a low impact to the ban list if you want to, ha to, to hamper both of those decks without killing them outright. You want to make them a little less consistent. You want to open up some holes in the metagame for something else to exploit. Ban exactly Thassa's Oracle. Because right now the uh, win condition for the Underworld Breach deck is Thassa's Oracle. If they don't have Thassa's Oracle, they can't actually kill you. So it would force a dramatic rebuild of the deck, potentially around something that's a little bit easier to interact with. On the other hand, for the Inverter Truth combo, it requires them, if they're going to combo in one turn i.e. cast inverter and then win the game in the same turn. It now costs them eight mana instead of six, giving you more time to mount a defense, either on the battlefield or in your hand or some combination therein, and force your opponent to, you know, you kind of force the issue, make them have it. You know, as a white deck, you can build a field of, you know, getting into the trials, uh, Hushbringer, and like a, I don't know, a Conclave Tribute? Not a Conclave Tribute, well, I'm dumb. Like a cast out in hand? To create a scenario where you can survive? Or force your opponent to have multiple spells at once? Just to set everything up? But on balance, you can also, you know, if you're the inverter player and you have a particularly strong hand, you might think, well, I can just... Turn four, Jace, turn five, inverter, you know, turn five, thought seize plus inverter, let's go win the game. And then in response to their thought seize, you just fire off a removal spell on the Jace. Maybe that's how you beat them. 
I don't know. But I look forward to trying. Because it's, I mean, it's weird to say that it's easier to beat that deck when Jace is their only win condition. But there's a reason it didn't appear until Thassa's Oracle did. So I think a clean hit to the top of Pioneer, the two decks that are kind of warping everything else around them. You hinder the consistency of both decks pretty heavily. You don't outright kill them so that they can remain format staples, you know, format defining staple decks. I'm okay with that. But you just knock them down a peg. A word on Dig Through Time and Treasure Cruise by extension. The cards are very good. And the more accidental two-card combos Wizards of the Coast prints, the better Dig Through Time gets. Specifically Dig Through Time. I haven't really seen a lot of Treasure Cruise. It was played heavily in the Phoenix decks early on. But the Phoenix decks just kind of fell off a cliff after people discovered that you could play Inverter. Or Control, or basically anything else. It's not to say the Phoenix decks are bad. They are capable of some of the most nutty draws in the format. But being capable and being consistent about it are two different things. So, as much as I like the idea of, you know, we'll just weaken both decks by hitting Dig Through Time... It doesn't really solve the problem. The inverter deck can still function just fine. The combination of no fetch lands in the format and outside of a handful of specific decks, not a lot of like really aggressive graveyard filling for the purposes of delve. I don't really have a problem with Dig Through Time and Treasure Cruise in this format. And I thought I was going to. I thought that they were going to be some of the first cards banned. I was positive they were broken in half. But it turns out they're just very good. They're, you know, Treasure Cruise is very good. It's busted when you have access to a myriad of one mana interaction and cantrips and spells. We don't really have that in Pioneer. You know, when you get to stack Lightning Bolt on top of Thought Scour, on top of Opt, on top of Serum Visions, on top of uh, Sleight of Hand, on top of, you know, Forked Bolt, on top of... It, it gets out of hand really easily, and it becomes this unreasonably powerful magic card where you're drawing three on turn four. Nearly every game. You build that same deck in Pioneer, it's not nearly as good. The, the cards cost more mana. We don't have fetches to help fill the graveyard. Just all the way around it helps weaken the impact the cards have early in the game. And makes them much more of like a late game regassing or a last ditch effort to find something. And that's okay. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. So that's my, my pitch for Pioneer. Just Thassa's Oracle. That will elegantly knock both of those decks down without killing them outright. Like the Breach deck can rebuild a new configuration that will 
conceivably be a little bit easier to interact with, right? And then inverter has Jace as its win condition. What about modern? Well, I haven't actually played a lot of modern, but I have definitely seen a lot of modern being played. And we got to get rid of Urza. There's no getting around it. We already banned one Modern Horizons mistake. Let's go ahead and get the other one out of here. The fact that a, a just straight blue-black Urza deck is among the most powerful things to do in Modern right now is absurd. And that's coming from a guy who really wanted the Thopter Foundry Sword of the Meat combo to be good for a long time. really wanted that combo to be good. I didn't mean infinite good. I meant grindy good. But, you know, not even, it's not even just that it's infinite good, it's that it, it like, the card just goes infinite with random collections of artifacts. It's absurd how good that card is. And then the other one is Once Upon a Time, because these Titan decks that people are complaining about that are that are ruling the, ruling the roost under the Urza decks. Titan decks are good. But you take away once upon a time, they're less likely to have turn three Titan. Or they have to mulligan more often to find it. It also hampers the impact of the more linear strategies like Boggles or Infect that otherwise are a little bit inherently inconsistent because they play such a low threat density but the threat power level is really high because of how the decks are constructed. If you remove once upon a time, their threat density gets back to where it has been in years past and keeps them from being these absurdly consistent turn three monstrosities. So just as a whole, I feel like those two cards would be the biggest ban candidates for me in modern. And then as for legacy, vintage, pauper, commander, I got nothing. I haven't played enough Popper in the last year to know one thing or the other. I plan to rectify that in the near future with some help from our sponsor. But I just haven't gotten around to figuring that out yet. And then the other thing I wanted to talk about in the fast lane this week, I want to do our deck spotlight. And this week's deck spotlight is going to be on black red chain weather, which ironically enough is actually much more red black than it is black red. But that didn't stop half the player populace from registering it as Black Red Chain Roller. So I mentioned I was going to be talking about red this week and the, the versatility, the unsung versatility of the color red. There's very few decks that demonstrate that versatility within one neat, easy package, quite like uh, Red Black Chain Roller. For starters, at one mana they were playing an eight pack. You were playing a combination of um, Soul Scar Mage and Bomet Courier. And this was a carryover from the Ramen Up Red days. Like, they're, they're reasonable one-drops. Bomet Courier is just really good. It's literally just red card draw. Because it pays you off for using your burn spells to clear blockers out of the way. Like, it pays you off for playing your deck better. using your creatures as sources of damage and using your burn spells as ways to clear blockers. 
you know, being more combat oriented than you are burn, uh, burn spells upstairs oriented, I can get behind that. But even then, even going beyond that, you know, there were times I played Bomat Curry or Mardu Pyromancer in Modern, or Grixis Pyromancer in Modern. I've, I've currently played in the Big Aldrazi Red deck in Pioneer. Why? It's just really good. It's very unassuming until it draws you four cards in the middle of the game. You know, you're, you're playing a resource war with your opponent, you're trading stuff off, and then all of a sudden that stupid little 1-1 one, one that's been chipping in here and there never really did anything major, but somehow, someway it just kept chipping in. Oh, yeah, that thing draws a bunch of cards. And any removal spell that goes at the courier, like, you don't actually lose card advantage there. Yes, you lose the cards you exiled, but you know what? They're gone. You weren't getting them anyway. And then Soul Scar Mage played nicely with the burn spells you were playing and the namesake card in Goblin Chain Whirler because it was another, it was a creature that gave your damage-based removal the ability to do it in the form of minus one, minus one counters. So it gave damage the ability to kill indestructible threats. And it made Goblin Chain Whirler just an absolute beating on the average board of a Magic player. Just such a well-rounded card. Uh, you're not playing it for the prowess. You're playing it for the, the static. And you're playing it because it's a, it was the best red one drop available at the time. And then at two mana, they were playing typically a combination of Earthshaker Kenra and Car or not Earthshaker Kenra. Yeah, they might. It, it would be some combination of the cards: uh, Karizev, Skyship Raider, Scrap Heap Scrounger, or Earthshaker Kenra, depending on how fast you wanted your deck to be. If you leaned toward a split of Kenra and uh, Scrap Heap Scrounger, you wanted to be more aggressive. If you were playing like. Kari plus Scrap Heap Scrounger, you were being more defensive. But on the whole, the two drops, the value was in efficiency. You know, Kari Zev buys you, in, in attacking, buys you three power and four toughness of creatures, some of which has an awkward combination of abilities. So having access to... And then Scrap Heap Scrounger was just a recursive threat, keeps coming back. Uh, cruise your other two-drop card in Heart of Kirin, which I guess technically needs to be included here. You know, Heart of Kirin was really good. It also was one of the rare two-drops you could play that would turn on Prowess to allow Soulscar Mage to chip in for two on turn two. And then you could, on turn three, you know, Cast a cast a Bomat Courier, cast a Heart of Karen, swing for you know swing for three, do a thing, or you know the Karen's in on turn two. You go cast a cast a Bomat Courier, cast a Scrap Heap Scrounger, crew the Heart of Karen, attack for a bunch, get another exile. We're starting to pull ahead, right? At three mana, you were playing. Goblin Chain Whirler and sometimes On Crop Crasher. Uh, on Crop Crasher was a like a weird mutant form of removal where you were just preventing blocking. It was fantastic when you were racing. 
the fact that it died to shocks in the mirror was kind of awkward. But, I mean, what are you going to do? The fact that it was a three-mana, three-power haste threat. It's the same reason we're playing it in the, the Gruel Blitz deck right now. It just makes a ton of sense. Uh, but even failing that, I mean... There's, there's a lot to love about Oncrop Crasher. There's especially a lot to love about it in the small standard format. Even a large standard format, let's be real. Like, at that point, the red cards were some of the best cards in standard. It wasn't particularly close. And then at four mana, you had Hazareth the Fervent. Hazareth the Fervent is a giant, difficult-to-kill monstrosity that gives you something to do when you start flooding out. You can just hurl lands at your opponent's face. That is a great thing to do with excess lands. Fire them up, throw them at the face. But even failing that, even if you don't get, you know, even if you're not going upstairs with your lands, it can still chip away. You can, you know, force a lot of chump blocking action. You can force your opponent to devote resources to surviving the Hazaret. The, the combination of indestructible, you know, five power, four toughness, haste. Hazaret was just really, really good. Also available at four mana was Chandra Torture Defiance. And you could tell which direction these uh, red-black chain roller decks were leaning based on how many they were playing of each of their four drops. Notably, the more Chandras you were playing, the more value-oriented you were, the more Hazards you were playing, the more aggressive you were trying to be. But make no mistake, Chandra could still kill somebody in a hurry. You could plus to deal two damage or draw cards. I mean, it's not actually drawing cards, but it's basically drawing cards. You could Chandra and then plus to gain mana to cast another creature to protect her. Or a removal spell to protect her. Just all around fantastic magic card. And then obviously the, the other abilities are just dynamite. I, I, I will never overlook a Planeswalker with four abilities again. Won't do it. And then last but not least, at five mana, you were doing something everybody loved to do during that standard format. You were bringing some glory. I, I don't need to tell you how good Glorybringer is. It is Flame Tongue Kavu with flying and haste and two extra points of toughness for one more mana. You are killing something and bashing your opponent's head in at the same time. What's not to love? <laughs> and then, you know, your your non-creature spells. I already mentioned Heart of Kieran. You were playing those. You were playing... The, the, the list at this point started to kind of vary a little bit. You'd have some number of Abrade, Unlicensed Disintegration. Um, some lists would play actual burn spells like... Uh, 
lightning strike. I mean, most of them played lightning strike, I suppose, but some of them would go a little further. But even just the combination lightning strike, a braid, sometimes you'd see cut to ribbons as a, as a mana sink. Uh, cut being four damage to a creature, ribbons being black, black X out of your graveyard. Uh, target opponent loses X life. That's really good. It's like really good here. Because we're bringing the pain early in the game. The opponent starts to stabilize. And then we just start to dominate, you know, dominate size on the battlefield. We start to gain a bunch of card advantage. The opponent doesn't know what's going on. Their life total dips a little bit too low. And then bang, they've been cut to ribbons. So, I mean, it was just a really good choice. I love that card. And then, last but not least, some of the other variations you might see might consider including Rekindling Phoenix. Uh, it was especially good in the mirror because without exile-oriented removal, Rekindling Phoenix was a much better four-drop at being the value play than Chandra or, or uh, Azrael. Phoenix was big enough to end the game in a hurry. Flying was relevant in the matchup. It blocked everything and then left an egg behind to come back. It's just a really good magic card, and it's something I'm surprised more people didn't see was going to be good in Pioneer sooner. Other notable uh, substitutions, Vraska's Contempt was a card that made its way in and out of the deck over its tenure. Uh, it was typically played in sideboards when we were fighting through more mid-range decks, but often uh, some lists would be more of a mid-range deck in their own right and be playing the main deck as outs to problematic Planeswalkers, which is really good. So, on the whole, these cards were... These cards were solid. They were good enough. And that's that's kind of what I like to talk about when it comes to the, the versatility of red. You get to see it in full bloom here in this deck because you get to see the combination of early aggression that puts the opponent way back on the back foot. They're forced to use cheap removal spells to keep pace or get run over. But once they play too many of those... Your more powerful cards, your, your Goblin Chain Whirler that sweeps away, you know, swaths of the battlefield and chunks of their Planeswalker's loyalty and is just difficult to kill at all, which, of course, was the other three drop the deck was playing. Uh, one damage to your each opponent and each creature and Planeswalker those players control. It's really good. Like, really, really, really good. Especially strapped to a three-drop first strike body. Three-three. Cruise your heart of Karen. Wipes the board. Like it's just so good. So good. And then of course you have cards like I don't know. Duress coming in out of the sideboard. You had um more copies of Unlicensed Disintegration to fight through your grindier matchups. Again, Vraska's Contempt, even the, the lists that were playing some in the main deck would often board extra copies when they were playing against the more Planeswalker-driven strategies of the format. 
And I mean, all that put together just led to this utterly oppressive shell. You know, we talk about how good green has been in standard for basically forever, right? Tireless Tracker was an unreasonably good magic card. Ishkin or Graf Widow was a really good magic card. Once Upon a Time was a card so good it had to be banned. We got Oko, you know, standard right now we got Uro. Growth Spiral, Nissa. These, these green cards are really, really powerful. Do you know what else is really, really powerful? A deck like Red Black Chain Whirler. A deck that does a little bit of everything. Because you've got that blistering pace you can start off with. Force the opponent to interact. Force the opponent on the back foot. Make them do it. Make them have it. Oh, they did? Okay, well, let's just switch gears. And now we're going to try to value you out with this, this really hard-to-kill threat, this card that takes two removal spells to kill. Okay, you, you did that. Cool. Uh, here's another one. Okay, you killed two phoenixes. All right, we're going to Chandra. Exile. Cast. And you just kept through the middle of the game with your opponent having been softened up a little bit by your early turns, you were frequently just kind of beating them up. You were just trying to bludgeon them over the head with threats until they, they left enough of an opening that somebody gets through. And then failing that, you've got interactive spells of your own and you've got the one-two punch in the late game of Creatures in Your Graveyard and Scrap Heap Scrounger plus Heart of Kieran. You can just reanimate the Scrounger at their end step, untap. You can crew Heart of Kieran, make them have an abrade or other removal spell. If they do, that's great. You still have a 3-2 on the table they got to deal with that is only going to come back the next turn. And you just keep applying pressure from all these different weird angles all at once. And that's what made that deck so good that whole summer. It wasn't that red was just inherently the best color in standard. It was. It was. But that's not what made the deck good. The deck was good because it got to play a combination of a clean, coherent strategy. It got to utilize a lot of different tools. And... It got to play a handful of the best magic cards in that standard format. And when you get to do both of those things, your deck is going to be really good. So. Now let's slide over into the slow lane. It's time to talk uh, abstract concepts, theory applications, or just budget financial recommendations when it comes to magic gathering. This week, we're talking about the unsung versatility of the color red, as I've mentioned a couple of times already. So, what is it about red that keeps me intrigued time and time again, no matter how many times I play it, no matter how many different formats I play it in, what is it about red? And I think I've kind of boiled it down. Red is just good enough at a little bit of everything to be annoying. Which is to say, it's good enough at being aggressive. It's good enough at presenting high power mid-range threats. And at controlling the pace of the game. It does all three of those things very well, depending on how you build your deck. 
For starters, the, the ability to just blitz your opponent out of existence and gain the most virtual card advantage you possibly can, i.e. the virtual card advantage you gain by killing your opponent so all the cards in their hand and library are dead now because so are they. That has a long and well-documented history in Magic. Going back to the very first competitive red deck to win tournaments, it's Sly. It was the first deck constructed with a tight, really, you know, a really restrictive, mathematically generated mana curve. And while it played a lot of mopey Magic cards, the fact that it just used all its mana every turn and brought the aggression to the opponent was enough to put it on the map. And that's what got players talking about the possibility that a red deck was good because for a long time it just wasn't. If you were trying to fight the other decks on the same axis as them with access to their ancestral recalls and their wrath of gods and their, their pump knights, it just wasn't going to work. So Sly was the first deck that really put red on the map as one of the premier colors of magic is, you know, is, it was often the forgotten one. But Sly was the, was the deck that brought it back to the forefront and made people realize just how good Lightning Bolt was because it didn't care about your Pump Knights. It killed them equally. And yes, you were playing cards like Goblin Balloon Brigade or, uh, Mons or Iron Claw Orcs or Jackal Pops that have drawbacks that are difficult to manage sometimes. But in an era where everyone was trying to play these long, elegant, grindy, like disrupting scepter type mirror matches, those cards just kill people. It was the first deck to really put people on notice of, hey, I really don't have that long to play around with this. I got to figure out how to stop him. I gotta figure out how to stop this deck. I can't do this. I can't sit here dirtling around drawing a bunch of cards for three turns. I'm getting my teeth kicked in. To then, you know, the most obnoxious versions of the red deck when you, you know, you have access to Fire Blast and you can literally just oh, what's the math on it? You can literally just 14 somebody out of the game with access to Double Bolt, Double Fire Blast, and Four Mountains. You know, float Four, Bolt Bolt, all upstairs, that's six. Then you Fire Blast, Fire Blast, eight you. So, yeah, that'll do it. That'll do a lot of damage. You know, dead Guy Red, going even up to more modern versions, like the, uh, the Experimental Frenzy-style Red decks with all the burn spells and uh, get to a lava runner and wizard's lightning and you know experimental frenzy was a heck of a magic card but at its core it was still the same old red deck we've known forever we're just playing new pieces and the same slots on the mana curve so the aggressive red deck is not so much what i want to talk about as some of the other stuff most notably red's ability to play a mid-range game and to control pace because they are two of the most overlooked facets of the color identity of red basically in the history of magic discourse right because 
Red originally, and for a very long time, was only seen as an aggressive color. You know, even the, the Shard Phoenix deck from, I think it was Tempest Block Constructed, it may have been. Had to have been, because that was the Whispers of the Muse deck. Anyway, it was, you know, the, the blue-red control deck that the win condition was Shard Phoenix, a very red card. Shard Phoenix was basically the only red card in that deck. Even going to more modern-day applications and stuff like the the blue-red Tron deck that uh, Asap Labetowix top-aided Pro Tour Honolulu in 2006 with, or, you know, more even more recent variations than that, the, the Phoenix decks, the, uh, the whatever, right? The ability for red to present the ability to control the pace of the game is something that really doesn't get explored, doesn't get championed often enough. Burn spells don't have to go upstairs all the time. Yes, I know they, they say eventually with enough of them destroy target opponent, and that's the best kind of removal spell. But sometimes your creatures can do that for you. You just have to clear a path for them. Sometimes that Planeswalker on the table is going to kill you if you don't work on it. And, you you know, we champion the, the powerful removal spells in black and white, cards like Cast Out, cards like Braska's Contempt. You know what else is just as good at killing a Teferi Time Raveler that came down and, and minus A shock for one mana. One mana. That's not nothing. The fact that you're getting away with doing the same thing, destroying that Planeswalker for literally one less mana than any other color. Even, you know, when you start talking about splash options. Domri's Ambush and Angrass Rampage and Standard right now cost two mana. And those are the other cheapest responses to a Teferi that comes down and minuses to bounce. To say nothing of the fact that, you know, a combat step that you, you clear the land out of the way and kill Nyssa, that's worth some that's worth some work. You're you're stabilizing the board. You're whatever you're doing otherwise. You're stabilizing the board. You are removing the most potent threat on the table. And yeah, sure, sometimes you still catch them. They tap out for crisis to try to stabilize the board back, and then you just claim the first board and brain them to death. But by and large, the reason I look so much at playing red in decks is because I like the tempo advantage red brings. Even to decks that maybe already play with tempo a little bit, you know, I de as much as it pains me to say it because it goes against, you know, Hall of Famer, one of the best magic players in the world, in Seth Manfield, I actually like the Is It Flash decks better than I do the Simic ones. Because to me, while the Simic ones have higher impact individual cards, which is something a lot of players look for, it's something a lot of people like to have, I like having a more cohesive deck. And in the case of the Is It Flash deck, having access to Bone Crusher Giant, Scorching Dragon Fire, and if I need them, Shocks or Fries out of the sideboard, 
That's worth its weight in gold. Because even if they go to Fairy Time Raveler Plus, we just untap it and fry it. You don't get that out of another color. Not the same way you do out of red. They can, they can counter a Noxious Grasp out of black. Aethergust only solves... Aethergust does nothing here. Veil of Summer is banned. <laughs> and doesn't counter the... Doesn't re remove the Teferi. Only Fry is just going to get that thing off the table. No questions asked, no matter how many good counter spells. I don't care how many copies of Absorb and uh, Negate you have in your hand. Get it off the table. Two mana to your three. He gone. To say nothing of the mana efficiency and trading up when it comes to burn spells. A lot of the creatures that are seeing play right now are susceptible to burn. And in particular, one card, one of the most overlooked cards in Standard right now is Scorching Dragonfire. Because it's a lightning strike that doesn't go to the face, right? It hits a creature or a planeswalker. But in exchange for not going upstairs, if whatever you hit this turn dies, it gets exiled. So that shuts off. Graveyard recursion effects. Something as innocuous as that one person tried to make Phoenix work. It's gone. Get it out of here. Edgewall Innkeeper against the black version of the Adventure decks. It's gone. Get it out of here. You're not buying it back. No matter how many Order of Midnights you have, you got to find another one. I mean, to say nothing of the fact that it cleanly answers several Planeswalkers it, in the form of they come down at minus and then it just kills them. Teferi is obvious. But if Narset comes down and goes minus, kill her. Two mana, at your instep. She's dead. Untap. Let's work on you some more. You spent two mana to answer their three mana play. So red is one of the best colors at creating the mana efficiency bubble for tempo. You know, you you answer you time walk them by answering their threat, their their play, their mana usage with less, and then you get to untap and start resolving more spells. I don't get that when I play green with my flash deck. I like the Simic flash deck. I just don't like it as much as I like the Isn't one. deck just feels stronger to me. I don't know why. It just does. But even more, cards like Storm's Wrath are really efficient right now. Four damage to Nyssa and kill all the things she's made. That's really efficient for four mana. Because if you can chip in on her first, you know, chip, you know, flash in a borrower at end step, chip in for three, Storm's Wrath, 
Clear the board. Clean slate. Where's your other one? Show me the next one. It's just, it's really powerful. And even on the creature front, Bonecrusher Giant is a huge tempo play. It curves into itself. <laughs> even if you're on the draw, it frequently will curve into itself. There's a lot of tap lands being played in standard right now. Temples are one of the predominant cycles of lands. If not temples, then fable passage. Sometimes you're just forced to fable passage on turn three. Sometimes your opponent has Innkeeper, Lucky Clover, and spends turn three casting Beanstalk Giant. Uh, Fertile Footsteps. Copied. So you just stomp the Innkeeper, untap, Bone Crusher, let's get to work. You remove a threat and present a threat from a single card. It's so unreasonably good. But then we move into the mid-range territory, and that's that's really, I think, where red shines even more than it does in the ability to control pace. Because red has got some haymakers throughout the history of Magic. For mid-range decks. Rekindling Phoenix is great. Glorybringer is great. Hellrider is great. Thundermaw Hellkite is fantastic. Even right now in standard, Scargan Hellkite can kill people. Couple it with an onboard haste enabler. That's a 5-5 haste for 5 with flying. That's a reality smasher with flying. Ew. That can also point stuff upstairs with the, the activated ability. Hazard the Fervent. Unreasonably good mid-range red card. Because red as a mid-range color doesn't have access to a ton of card draw. It's more card selection than it is card advantage. So you are inevitably going to start to flood out at some point. Hazard says, that's cool. I'll just throw those at their head. We're still generating pressure, and as long as your hand is low enough, so is she. So it's just outstanding. To say nothing of the red-based Planeswalker cards like Chandra Torch and Defiance that we talked about earlier. She's so good. Plus to, exi plus to gain extra spells for the turn. Or plus to gain extra mana for the turn. Or plus to remove a creature and leave a Planeswalker behind. Or ultimate. Ew. Ew. That's so good. All for four mana? I get all that for four mana. Okay. What about standard right now? Oh, what about uh, Sarkin the Masterless? One of the most underrated magic cards I've ever seen. I have seen that card single-handedly win games. Numerous times. Whether it's in the Fires of Invention decks or out of the sideboard of like uh, Team of Reclamation where it, you know you, you Reclamation on, th on four or three sometimes a growth spiral. Untapped Sarkin, untapped you know, 
Sarkin, make a dragon, untap with counter magic and removal up. And Sarkin just starts killing them. The best way to look at Sarkin. It's a broodmate dragon that sometimes is just a planeswalker. It's a broodmate dragon that can every, what, three turns or so, just spit out another 4-4. Four four if it survives. And if it doesn't, you still got a 4-4. Four four. To say nothing of how embarrassing it is for your opponent when you Sarkin make a dragon against the Calamity Red deck. They go declare attack. Sarkin goes, that's cool. Kill everything. You better have Torbrand on the field because you're not dealing enough damage to matter without him. That's what Sarkin brings to the table. Like, Broodmate Dragon was a big deal when it came out. Six mana for eight power across two bodies with fly. And then Sarkin is that for five mana, but half of it is harder to interact with because he's a planeswalker that also chips away at stuff that's coming at him. So, like, they have to kill the token and then swing into Sarkin. If they, want it, if they want it to be easy. If they don't have a removal spell, they just have to figure some stuff out. They have to make life decisions. <laughs> and even, you know, Inferno Titan. That's a haymaker of a red mid-range card. Three damage. It, it, you, you get a 6-6, six, six, and you also arc lightning. And you also arc lightning every time it attacks. And also, it gives you something to do with extra mana because you can just pump it into that and kill them. Cavalier of Flame does a lot of that in standard right now. Even in, even in, I would argue Cavalier of Flame is worth playing even in non-fires decks if you're playing a little bit bigger. Because it gives you something to do with cards that have been proven dead in the matchup. If you're holding a bunch of Lava Coils and Scorching Dragon Fires against a you know, Elspeth Conquers Death to Fairy Time Raveler, Dream Trawler, Ark on a Sun's Grace Control Death. <coughs> Cards that don't give you a lot of mileage in that matchup. Bless you, Bob. You can also just Cavalier of Flame, ditch the ditch the dead cards, try to draw some gas, and you've got this big body on the table. Really good. You know, the idea that red can't play the same kind of value game other colors do is ridiculous. At one point, Brad Nelson referred to the mono red deck in standard as mono red jund. Because it was mono red, but you were getting to play a wild, a wide collection of some of the best cards in standard glued together by a selection of, of stuff to fill out the mana curve and some one-for-one -one removal. But when you're playing cards like Rekindling Phoenix and Chandra Torture Defiance and Glorybringer as your top ends that are all very aggressive two-for-ones, you're not playing your, 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 your previous generation's red deck. Even the uh, the mono red Eldrazi that I'm playing in Pioneer, 
I think I talked a little bit about this last episode. I can't remember. The last time I did a deck spotlight anyway. I can't remember for sure. But the idea of playing Matter Reshaper, Thought Not Seer, and Reality Smasher inside what is otherwise kind of a big red deck with efficient removal that exiles along the way. And then you just have some powerful magic cards in Goblin Rabble Master, Rekindling Phoenix, and uh, a Glory Bringer. Like, that's quintessential modern day red deck theory. So the idea that red decks have to be autopilot, everything goes upstairs, try to kill your opponent as quick as possible, is beyond laughable in today's game. Even the mono red deck in standard that everybody's playing right now plays more like a mono white aggro deck than it does a mono red deck. Ember Cleave is just a messed up magic card and ruins people. But in the absence of Ember in the absence of Ember Cleave, that deck is just a mono white deck that just so happens to play mountains. You're trying to get really wide on the board, deal as much damage, beat your opponent up with a bunch of creatures, and hope that, you know, play some kind of insurance against sweepers, because if you don't do it with creatures, you're not going to do it at all. You don't have a fallback plan. And that's not a bad thing inherently. It's just the way the deck is designed. It's not to say it's bad. It's not to say it's awful. It's not to say it's wrong. It's just the way it is. So I, I, I've, I've talked at length before about how the, the misconception around aggro players that is that there, there's this stigma about playing aggro that you have to hate playing magic to play it because you only play short games or you're an idiot because you play it because you, you only ever have to worry about just trying to kill your opponent as quick as possible. And if they make you play a real honest game of magic, you're going to lose every time. A lot of that applies to red decks. The idea that red decks build themselves based on the amount of burn spells in the format is laughable. Otherwise, we'd still all just be playing the Calamity deck. Because that's the best, like, direct damage version of the red deck in standard right now. But it's not the one we're playing because it's not the best version. The best version is more combat math oriented. You have to make smart decisions with your attacking creatures. Anax is a heck of a magic card. There's just a lot more to it that people give it credit for. And it starts with understanding kind of the change in modern design philosophy when it comes to red. And last but not least, I want to talk about the not necessary the card advantage in red is weird, right? They don't give red pure draw cards very often. When they do, they tend to look something like Light Up the Stage. And Light Up the Stage was so powerful, I tried to build bad decks around it for the better part of a year and a half. Like, that's how powerful a card Light Up the Stage is. It doesn't see play in the current red deck, because even though it's... A, a red draw to which you would think every single red deck would want access to. The current red deck is playing a little bit of a higher mana curve. So that makes that card a little less appealing. A higher mana curve plus 
options that can string the game out longer in the format around you. Options that can gum up the board with lots of big fat backside creatures. It doesn't bode well for the aspiring red mage. Right? So, at the end of the day, red decks are a lot stronger than people give them credit for. A lot of your card advantage in red depends on how well you play it. You know, Anax is a form of card advantage. Rekindling Phoenix is a form of card advantage. Arclight Phoenix is a massive form of card advantage and pressure. And the ability to control pace all kind of wrapped up into one neat package. You just have to know how to build around it. You know, Anax wants you to play lots of red symbols, but more than that, you want to play lots of creatures. Anax gets better the more creatures you have in your deck. He also gets better the more uh, spot removal opponents are playing, but I digress. Or rather, the less spot removal your opponents are playing, I suppose. Because you, you want them to be forced to resort to sweeping the board, and then Anax makes a ton of tokens. And everybody's happy. But, you know, it is what it is. Also, can we say how silly it is to play the second copy of Anax Arden in the Forge? When you cast the second copy and the first one dies to, to Legend Rolling, you get four satyrs. That's a little silly. Just a little bit silly. But even when it comes to splashing red into other decks, right? Like Bonecrusher Giant is a card I literally splashed into the green-black adventure deck. That's how good that individual magic card is. It has enough synergy with what's going on that it's worth playing. Like it combos well with Lucky Clover and Edgewell Innkeeper. But it's also really stupid good with Order of Midnight, buying it back to reuse over and over again. That's the only red card I'm playing in Jund Adventures. That's it. It's the only one. So, you know, say what you will about red. Just make sure you're not seeing red when your opponent beats you and kicks your teeth in with it. And with that, let's move on. Let's uh, let's start to wrap it up. Let's pull over. We're starting getting ready to pull into the driveway. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Homeward Path MTG on Facebook. My name is Adam Spain. On uh, the Facebook group for the show, it's called the Homeward Pathfinders. Uh, you can find me in the Constructive Criticism Family Discord. You can find great content by a myriad of creators two different places. One from our sponsor, puremtgo.com is the one of the largest collections of quality magic content on the web. But if you're, if you're in for a long time, instead of a lot of stuff, you know, you don't have quite the same amount of time. Our, our parent company got our own website, constructorcriticism.com. Common knowledge has two new hosts. I have not gotten a chance to listen to this week's episode yet, but I will be on it as soon as uh, probably Monday. If I'm being honest, probably listen Monday on the way to work, but it is what it is. Uh, oh, brain mind turning to clay. 
actual constructive criticism, the flagship show on the network is fantastic. I can't recommend it highly enough, and it is good, and you should watch and or listen to it. Uh, Mason has always been one of the more entertaining content creators out there, so seeing him kind of take the reins for constructive criticism and run with it has been an, in an interesting experience, to say the least. Uh, and last but not least, if you like what I'm doing enough to help me keep doing it, head over to patreon.com slash homewardpathmtg. This show and every other major piece of content I put out is always going to be free. But if you like what I'm doing enough to help me keep doing it, please feel free to donate. Every little bit helps toward expenses, things like a new microphone or uh, potential entry fees down the line for bigger tournaments that I will be traveling to, either entry fees or lodging, as the case may be. So, and regarding uh, possible upcoming content, we got a little bit of stuff on the way. Uh, notably, with Daylight Savings Time coming up on Sunday, I'm going to actually have some daylight left when I'm driving home from work as long as I get off work on time. Now, that has been the struggle the last couple of weeks. I've been getting off work at 7, 8, 9 o'clock. You know, I have enough time to get home as quickly as I humanly possibly can, uh, clean, the, clean the stench of shame and sweat off of me and lay down in the bed and collapse. That's about all I have time for. So moving, you know, creating another series like I used to do with the writing and cars with cards has been very difficult. Uh, but I don't know if anybody's got ideas on a, on another segment piece I can put out either on YouTube or, uh, well, almost exclusively on YouTube, right? Uh, another segment piece I can do on YouTube, something you'd like to see done, especially one of the patrons who have access to the Patron Pathfinders Discord, let me know. Uh, give me a heads up. I know that was the $3 reward, was having your deck featured on Riding in Cars with Cards. If you want your deck featured in the deck spotlight segment on this show, retroactively, that's what I'm going to do. We're going to put it there. So submit your stuff. And la the, the very last thing I want to touch on, it has been a rough week for a lot of people, not just those of us who've worked long hours and miserable conditions. So when you head out, whether it's this weekend, you know, you're listening the day after I make, uh, after I post this or the weekend after it doesn't matter. You never know what somebody else has been going through. You never know what somebody else is dealing with. And I posted the quote, I posted this quote on Twitter the other day, but I'm going to use my favorite two sentences from the end of it. I'm going to be signing off with this basically from now until forever. Remember as you go out to interact with the other people in this magic community, you always want to try to be nice, but please never fail to be kind to the people around you. So have a good weekend, have a good week, and I will catch you next time on our way down the homeward path.